It's nice to be with you this morning. Gabby and I have sure appreciated the hospitality and the fellowship that was extended to us at his hill. And of course, we were here two years ago, according to my records in October. Uh, and that was my introduction to Bernie Bible Church, of which I had heard for quite some time. And so it's a privilege to be with you again. Gabby and I will fly back to Germany this afternoon. We've been on the road for seven weeks. So we're looking forward to getting home. And uh, I felt that it was appropriate and, and uh, right to be able to take this invitation this morning. I must confess, uh, the Texas and weather has been pretty, or the weather in Texas has been pretty unpredictable. So yesterday I was sweating, and then this morning it was another story. So I don't know what to, what to say anymore. Would you pray with me before we read God's word? Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning in much freedom and wealth. I want to thank you for your presence, Lord Jesus. And I would simply pray that you would take your word and break it small. And just show us yourself afresh. We thank you for your presence here to do that. And we thank you. Amen. There's only one miracle in the Gospel accounts that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that miracle was the feeding of the 5,000. And it's interesting that our Lord would choose to have that recorded in each one of the Gospels. It's the only one. And if God repeats himself so often, there's probably good reason. That's not the event that I would like to talk about this morning that the Lord has laid on my heart, but I'd like to talk about and look at what happened immediately following that. In particular, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22 through verse 33. And if I were to give this message a title, I would give it this title. What is over my head is under his feet. As I listen to you turn to Matthew chapter 14, I'd like to refer us to the parallel account of this event in John chapter 6 and verse 15, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. We re read there in John chapter 6 and verse 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself, alone. It is a phenomena in human nature and something which we must be aware of in particular. When God is working, and the Lord Jesus is, is very evidently meeting people, the one through whom he does that needs to pay attention and know that although my motives might be right in the Lord, others might come to me, and it may feel very, very good, but they're coming with wrong motives for the very thing that Jesus is doing in our lives. And when they saw Jesus and experienced him providing for their need of bread, they wanted to make him king. And Jesus would have none of it. He left. It's interesting that this event took place in Bethsaida 
And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus lists off the cities in which the majority of his miracles had been done. And we read there in verse 20 in Matthew 11, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, we, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So just because there is evidence of the work of Christ... And he blesses people, and people come to know his sufficiency in, in a very, very direct way doesn't mean that their hearts are right towards him. Even after an event like this. Because they refuse to repent. Until there is a change of mind, there is going to be no change in life. And sometimes Jesus seems elusive. Jesus seems like he is playing hide and seek. And the simple reason is that I am approaching him with a wrong motive. Jesus did not come to solve the problem of bread. He came to be the bread of life. And when they approached him as the problem solver for their lives, he would have none of it. Jesus didn't come to solve my problems. He came to be my life. And there's an interesting verse in Psalm 18 and verse 26 where it says, with the pure you show yourself pure and with the crooked you show yourself astute or twisted or aloof. Sometimes it seems as if we can't get close to Jesus and the simple reason is the motive of our heart is wrong. He's not come to just solve my problems. We come to Matthew chapter 14. And it says in verse 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus you know, had the opportunity at the end of the feeding of the 10,000 plus to plant a church, start a torchbearer center. He enjoyed the, 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 you know, the admiration and attention of thousands of people at that time. But he went away. And if you read the biographical material of Jesus and how he lived his life, Jesus was never impressed with a crowd. In fact, more often than not, when Jesus faced a crowd, he did one of two things. Either, number one, he offended them, or number two, he avoided them. But this just doesn't make sense, and that shows me that there was a greater priority in the heart of Christ than meeting these people's needs, and that was to maintain obedient fellowship with his father. That even took precedence over this large crowd of people. Jesus never let commotion, or commotion ruin his communion with his father. 
And his goal was not necessarily the service of man. His goal was the fellowship and obedience to his father. A pastor by the name of Gerhard Terstegen, he lived in the 17th century in Germany, said something very wise. He said, this is your constant work to remain self-aware and to walk with the Lord in the hidden place of your spirit as if you and he were the only ones in the world. And if I would live that way, it's going to demand that I adopt something of the heart of Jesus towards his Father in my heart and relationship towards him. He went away to pray. And you would say, humanly speaking, he missed a tremendous opportunity. I need to understand that opportunity is not necessarily the green light for God's will. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And the economy of God operates in a different way than my own. There are three things in the scriptures, in the gospel accounts, where it says Jesus did something as was his custom or his habit. Very interesting. Three things that Jesus did as was his custom. Number one, he went to the synagogue regularly, where he and his family heard, even as a young boy, the word of God read in public regularly. He went to the synagogue week after week after week after week and heard the word of God. Second thing that it says was his custom, it was his custom to teach. It's very interesting of all the services of Jesus, it says it was his custom or his habit to teach. And thirdly, the scriptures tell us that it was his custom to go, for instance, to the Mount of Olives alone there to pray. That tells me that, that a habit is not necessarily automatically legalism. There's a place for a habit in the life of a child of God. And Jesus had them. And as anybody who, who knows more about physics than I do, it always takes more energy to get something rolling than to keep it rolling. And there is a place for what I call spiritual momentum and rhythm in the life of a child of God to maintain and protect fellowship with Jesus. And in my mind, that's going to that's gonna look different in our seasons for life. My sister Heidi heard me speaking about these things, and she said, I was single at the time, by the way, and she was, uh, you know, mom with small kids. She said, that's easy for you to say. But she said, you know, the only way I can have a quiet time is lock myself in the bathroom. If that's your rhythm to maintain fellowship with Jesus, that might be the season to do so. I don't have to do that because the rhythm of my life is different, but I'm thankful for the years in which I developed a holy habit, so that when life changed and the pressure comes, it is the most natural thing to do to pursue that. Jesus did that. I, I heard probably at a young age, you know, we should be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
And I interpret that, that to mean that I was supposed to be available to people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jesus did not live that way. He was not available to these people. He sent them away, and he said the magic word, no, in his heart, and he went away to be with his father. Now, that just seems so unkind at times, but that's the way that the Lord Jesus lived. I am supposed to be available 24-7 to my Lord, and sometimes to be available to him is going to mean I'm going to have to say no to others. I find that so hard because sometimes it's going to cause a little bit of misunderstanding. And I'm sure that it did on that day when Jesus sent the crowds away and went up on the mountain by himself to pray with his Father. Mountaintops are great places to get a great view, but you don't live on a mountaintop. Gabby and I live across the lake from the Swiss Alps, and you reach a point where you get over the, the tree line, and there's not much vegetation up there. The food is in the valley. There's a great view on the top of the mountain, but growth takes place in the valley. Matthew chapter 14 takes place about six months after the disciples were on this same lake, and a very similar event took place. When Jesus said at the end of March 4, we're going to go to the other side of the lake, we're not going to drown in the middle, he said, we're going to the other shore. And lo and behold, they obeyed Jesus, and they found themselves in a storm. Jesus was resting in his father so confidently that he was taking a nap in the boat. The disciples woke him up and said, Lord, doesn't it matter to you that we're about to die? And he stands up and he says, hush, be still. And everything became calm. And the disciples' answer was very interesting. They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? In other words, they weren't really convinced as to who Jesus was. And between that event and the one that we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 14, there was about a period of six months, and during that time, Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a person. He healed a hemorrhaging woman. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He sent them out and empowered them to preach, cast out demons, and heal. And then, just before this event... He feeds 10,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. You would think that the disciples at this point would have had the faith to move mountains. And yet we read in Mark chapter 6 and verse 52, they had not gained any insight from the incidents of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Well, Jesus is a good teacher, and one of the fundamental principles of teaching is Repetition. And you know in the discipleship process, if I don't learn the, the lesson the first time, Jesus is extremely patient, and he is able very graciously to lead me into strikingly similar events 
a second time in order that I might learn the lesson. I think it was Stephen Olford who said, God does not show us anything new until our obedience is up to date. And he is very thorough in the discipleship process. And right when I think that I've escaped the crisis but didn't learn the lesson, the amazing thing is when I'm running from the Lord is letting me run right into very similar circumstances so that I might learn the lesson. And anybody who's walked with the Lord long enough and is honest enough will tell you that the Lord has allowed me to run into similar circumstances because I didn't learn the lesson the first time. And hence, it's no mistake that we read in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat. It's like, it's like Jesus standing there, guys, I want you to get in the boat. And that started ringing bells because they're thinking six months earlier what happened when they got into the boat on that lake. And it's like Jesus says, you guys get into the boat. <laughs> get out there. Well, the goal of faith is always that its object might become more real. And six months earlier, he chose to calm the waters and to calm the wind. That's what he did six months earlier. At this time, he was going to do something else. One time in my life, he might say to my circumstances, hush and be still. Another time in my life, he might say to me, come and walk on those circumstances. The one time he may change my circumstances, the other time he may change me. One time he may remove the difficulty, the other time he might revive his disciple. One time he might command the wind, the other time he might command the disciple. You see, there are different ways by which Jesus is going to educate my faith because the goal of discipleship is to learn how to remain rightly related to Jesus no matter what happens. And so we read in Matthew chapter 14, verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Sure enough, they obeyed Jesus and they find themselves in the middle of a storm. Just because I find myself in a storm doesn't necessarily mean that I'm living in disobedience or I'm under spiritual attack or that I misunderstood the will of God for my life. God knows that calm seas don't make good sailors and he arranged this storm because he needed to repeat the lesson that they didn't learn six months earlier. And so when they obey Jesus, they land in the middle of a storm, and that storm was the perfect and acceptable will of God for their lives. 
You see, the feeding of the 5,000, that need was aimed at the 10,000 plus, actually. The storm was the disciples' need. That was the disciples' need that day. The bread was somebody else's need. Now the storm was the need of the disciples. And, and it says that Jesus didn't come to them until the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 and 6 a.m. And you have to ask yourself, why did he wait so long? Well, it's very simple. It takes till the fourth watch of the night to come to the sometimes. And there is something in the heart of God that is pleased to get me to a place where my only option is Jesus. And that's where they were. They were fishermen, a number of them had grown up on this lake. And if anybody knew what to do, they did. And sometimes knowing what to do is not necessarily an advantage in the kingdom of God. Because the longer or more you know what to do, the more you're going to tend to act independently of him. It's when we get into those situations where we don't know what to do that our only option is Jesus. You see, in the kingdom of God, the important thing is not how, the important thing is who. The important thing is who. They cried out for fear because the Jews believed that immediately before you die, the death angel comes to pick you up. And I'm sure they thought, this is it. And that's why it says, immediately Jesus spoke, it's me. Don't be afraid. Well, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28... We read there, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. We must always remember that somebody may need the testimony of you and I walking on the water. In other words, coming to the end of ourselves in that place where the only option we have in life is Jesus. And we need to be good stewards of the storm. Typical being Peter, he speaks up and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And in order to do so, he received the command of Jesus, and Jesus gave Peter exactly what he has given us, the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so Jesus says, come. And because faith is always characterized with a work, With an act, Peter had to do something in order to come. 
the first thing he had to do is he had to drop his oars. And his, it says that they were straining at the oars probably for hours in order to survive and to keep things under control. Friends, I confess to you this morning that I have wasted an incredible amount of psychological and even physical energy trying to control things that I can't in the first place. And, and to offset the insecurity on the inside, I'm setting myself to try and control events on the outside just so that I can have a calm, and yet it doesn't work. And I've probably irritated those closest to me in my anger because my anger is often the result of not being able to control things. And I need to repent from that. I do not have people in circumstances under control, nor do I need to. That's often the storm. And secondly, he not only needed to leave the oars behind, he needed to leave the others. There was only one out of 12 that got out of that boat. And if there's one word that is going to describe our lives, if we would walk in total dependence and obedience to Jesus, it's going to be the word alone. Because the longer you go with Jesus and walk with him in total dependence and obedience, the fewer are going to follow. And you'll experience what I call a blessed loneliness. Because you'll know Jesus in a way that is so precious you're willing to take that sacrifice on yourself. And when Peter did that, God does what he always does. He always accepts responsibility for the consequences of my obedience. Always. And he got out of that boat and he walked on the waves. In other words, those waves became a bridge towards a greater knowledge of Jesus. Those waves became a part of his discipleship process whereby the object of his faith became more real. Because one of God's goals is to get me to see that Jesus walks on the chaos of my life this morning. He's not bent out of shape, he is not unprepared, he is not shocked. Everything that's over my head is under his feet. It really is. And that can't just be a title of a sermon this morning. But it's going to demand that I give up my so-called need to have everything under control. And secondly, it may mean that I might have to walk this lonely path with Jesus. The way of Jesus is always the way of faith, not fear. We say in German, Angst ist kein guter Ratgeber. Fear is not a good counselor. The way of Jesus is the way of faith. There is one thing to fear in the Christian life, though. The one thing we should fear in the Christian life is our own disobedience. That's the one thing we should fear. 
course, Peter got out on those waves, and something happened that often happens along the walk of faith, and that is this. Facts got in the way of truth. And the facts were that he is walking on waves, and you shouldn't be doing that. And he was just now walking according to the truth of Proverbs chapter five, 3 and verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Sometimes the facts contradict truth. I love facts because facts give me control. But at this point, for Peter to walk out, walk onto that water, step out of the boat, he had to walk according to the truth, but the truth was contrary to the facts that faced him. And he had to believe with all of his heart. Do you know, in, I think it's in, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, Scripture says we believe with the heart. Our students come to me and they say, you know what, I received Jesus at a, at a young age. Was it real? Yes, it was. Because a child can discern in their heart what is, what is true before the living God. Do they understand it all? Of course not. I didn't understand everything about my relationship with Christ when I was born again at age 13. I was biblically ignorant of the biblical facts. But I knew the truth. And the Spirit of God commuted the truth of God to my heart, and all I needed was John 3.16 and a guy named Bill Gibson, not Mel Gibson, Bill Gibson, sat, sitting at my side, who led me in a very simple prayer to receive Christ. And a small child can discern that. And that's why Jesus said, let the, let the children come to me. It's not to discount our mind. Our minds are extremely important because what I allow to dominate my thinking ultimately creates a conviction in my heart as to what I'm going to believe. Of course our minds are important. And I need to feed my mind with truth. 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 Faith is only going to be reasonable in light of the revelation of God's word. And it's interesting that Peter asked for a command, not a promise. The securest place on earth for a child of God is when they're obedient to God's word. You know, it's interesting that in, in, in Moses, he gave Israel 613 commands. And some of them according to our modern minds, you know, seem a little bit unusual. Don't sow with two kinds of seed. Don't wear a shirt with two kinds of cloth. Don't plow with a donkey and, and an ox together. In our minds, we're saying, why do we have to do that? Sometimes, I think, in, in God's economy, he wanted to train his people to obey in spite of what they thought would have been the right and proper thing to do. Because sometimes our obedience is going to take us to a place and others are going to say, that just is so unreasonable. It's truth. Uh, the, 
some of you know uh, the story of the beginnings of torchbearers, and Major Thomas was part of the British occupation forces near a city called Wuppertal in Germany. It was a city actually by the name of Felbert. And he was asked by the Allied forces to take over the administration of that city. His wife, Joan, was living in London with their son, Chris. And he, he heard about a piece of property in northern England, just south of the Lake District, that was going to be auctioned off. And at one point after the war, Major Thomas said he was flying over Germany, and God laid it on his heart, we're going to love these people, for Jesus' sake. When I talk to those who have gone before me about those years, that was a pretty radical statement. And so he sent his wife and a businessman who was a friend of his up to northern England to a small village called Carnforth where this piece of property of around 250 acres of land and what they called a country home was located on it. And they went to this public meeting and the bidding began and Major Thomas gave his wife an amount, I think, of about 7,000 British pounds. He says, that's your limit. And they reached the limit. And the businessman whispered over to her. She, he said, what should I do? Being a good shopper, she said, go a little further. And he went a little further and bang, sold to Thomas. She said she went around the corner and leaned against the building and this blanket of dread came over her. She said, what have I done now? In order to understand what she had done, I brought a picture this morning of that country house in northern England that she purchased with about 250 acres of land. That's why she said, what have I done now? <laughs> this was 1947. There were trees growing through the window. This was a private home of the Martin family. It had been used as a school and, and a fuel depot during the war. What on earth have I done now? She was 26 years old. Had lived in Germany, or excuse me, London, while Germany was bombing that city. Major Thomas had a friend, his name was Alan Redpath. He was an accountant by training. And he found out about this and he said, you're a fool. You ought to sell that thing immediately and at least save your reputation. Major looked at him and he said, someday I'm going to build you a home on this property. And he did. It's called Willowbeck Lodge. It still stands and I've stayed there. On the basis of that experience, Major Thomas said this. He said, it doesn't have to be possible to be God's will. It just needs to be right. And what is right, God makes possible. I've never forgotten that. It was right for Peter to step out of that boat that day and out of obedience to what was right according to truth, God made it possible.
Well, I just heard the siren go off in Bernie. And I was told when the siren goes off, it's time to wind up. But I do want to add this to close. They got into that boat with Jesus, and it says they fell at his feet and worshipped him, and they said, certainly you are God's son. Lesson learned. Back in John chapter 6, in the, in the parallel account, after they had gotten on over to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, large crowds followed Jesus because they wanted Jesus to solve all their problems. I mean, he solved the problem of bread. He can solve the problem of my business, my marriage, my neighbor, my hair falling out. Jesus didn't come just to, just to solve my problems. And then he goes into a long section of teaching on himself as the bread of life. And we read in John chapter 6 and verse 66 this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you, want, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These people were following Jesus on the basis of sight, and when they saw 10,000 plus fed with bread, they wanted Jesus to solve their problems. He then goes into this message, and he gets to the end of the message, and they left him. They said, who, who can listen to this? We need to understand that more people left Jesus during his ministry than followed him. And sometimes when you speak the truth, not everybody's going to enjoy that message. You see, results or lack of results are not necessarily a sign that we need to change the message. Could very well be that somebody needs to change their heart. And they all left them. And the thing about Jesus, you know, he didn't run after them because he needed to have followers. He didn't, he didn't run after those who left him and say, oh, sorry, I'll, let me just change the conditions. I really, really need somebody to be following me. Otherwise, the missions committee is going to cut my support. He didn't, he didn't operate that way. They left, and he had such confidence in his father because he took time to be with his father. And he looks at his disciples, and he says, you don't, you don't want to go away too, do you? And the one that spoke up of those 12 standing there was Peter. And he said, Lord, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. Where did he learn that? In the storm. In other words, those who went through the storm with Jesus were the ones that stuck with him. Praise God for those who have been through the storm. They stay with Jesus. They did then, and they do now. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that the storm is an opportunity for Jesus to become more real to us. And I pray that in the way that we need it this morning, the truth might penetrate our conscience and that we would act on him instead of our circumstances. And I want to thank you for those men and women of God who have gone before us and who have been through the storm and who have stuck with you and witnessed to us the sufficiency of Jesus. May we be good stewards of the storm. For your own name's sake, amen.